1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Douglas Kerr. Professor Kerr is Honorary Professor of English at the University of Hong Kong, and today we're discussing his book, Oral and Empire, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Kerr. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Professor, what is the thesis of your
2: book? I joked with my publisher that I wanted to call this book Orwell Upside Down. Um, And that's because the thesis of the book is that his experience and understanding of empire is absolutely crucial to our understanding of George Orwell. And it's something that tends to get a bit neglected because most people who read Orwell and study him and you know about him uh, gravitate towards the, towards the end of his career. You know, he died in 1950. His two most famous books, Animal Farm, and 1984 were published in the 1940s. So that's where people, that's where the center of gravity for Orwell's work tends to fall. But I would want, if I can, to move it back to much earlier in his career, and to look at the presence of experience of empire in his background and his upbringing, and particularly in his well, as it's but particularly in his early experience, his first job after leaving school was when he joined the imperial police in Burma, and he served in Burma, colonial Burma, for five years as a really very young man. And thesis of the book is, that's where, if there is a key to Orwell, that's where you're going to find it. So I looked in particular at his earlier work, um, an early novel called Burmese Days, 1934, and the quite well-known essay narratives, The Hanging and Shooting an Elephant, and then quite a lot of other stuff about Burma that he published in the early years, but also if you then look through the rest of his output, which was quite prodigious, you know, for a man who died quite young, there are 20 volumes of the collected works of George Orwell. All the way through there, I think, in the fiction and the non-fiction, you can find him struggling with the question of the empire. That's the thesis.
0: On page three of your book, you state that the UK, in the period prior, the 100 years prior to the Great War, beginning in 1914, was, quote, more Asian than European, unquote. Surely that's a bit of an exaggeration, is it not?
2: Did I say that the UK was more Asian than European? Uh, If I said that, oh,
0: (laughs) if you say so. Um, Actually, you, you didn't use the word, you didn't use the term UK, you used Great Britain.
2: Yes, I think I was probably thinking about the, 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 Britain's understanding of its political position in the world, um, it was much more oriented towards its interests in the far overseas, in the empire, particularly in India, in the rest of Asia, and Africa, the Caribbean, and so on, than it was uh, in relation to its European neighbours. After 1815, when they felt that they'd sorted that out, um, <clears throat> they didn't want to get drawn in too much to European issues. As long as the empire was safe and secure, Britannia ruled the waves. For the next 100 years after eighteen fifteen, they were a world, thought of themselves as a world's power rather than a European power. 1914, of course, drags them back to European issues. Where in a sense, they've been in the sense. So, that's it. They were an imperial power. A family like um, all of their own family. You remember his, his family name was Blair, and George Orwell was a, a non-declosure name that he adopted as a writer. His own family, if you look back to his family history, he's very much implicated in, in imperial matters. Going back a couple of centuries, or more actually, to ancestors who traveled to the Caribbean, and, um, became plantation owners over there, and, and revolted slavery, and so on. But also his family's um, experience of imperial administration, um they were very much a, a an, an imperial outfit, the Blair family. And that went down to his own father, who worked uh, who was a uh, civil service administrator, worked in India for all of his career um in notoriously in the opium department of the British government of India. Um, That was his job until he retired and came back, uh, came back to live in England um, at the end of that. So it was quite a natural thing for Orwell himself, when he left school, and he didn't go to university. It's quite a natural thing for him to seek his career in the East. When he got to Burma, he already had uh, his maternal grandmother was already living uh, there. His mother's family had been tea merchants in Burma for a couple of generations. Really? So he, in one sense, he felt quite a home when he got there. So that this is the imperial, which I'm trying to uh, extract from Orwell's writing to collect, perhaps, an overemphasis um, on Orwell as a kind of a, a man of the Cold War. I okay. think that's very important in his career, and indeed he probably coined the phrase, Cold War, but um, to understand all, I think we need to go further back and see how the empire figured in his experience and in his thinking.
0: Would it be true to say that you did not necessarily regard the British Empire in the, the best light? Well, uh, yes, it would be true
2: to say that. That's the brief answer. The long answer is that it's a very complicated question. Um, he came to be definitely an anti-imperialist. He wanted to see the British Empire demolished, abandoned, and all other empires too. Um, and that remained a, a consistent viewpoint right through until his death. Um, however, having said that, it's not such an easy thing to get rid of empire from the earth, from, from from people's thinking. So, I'm very interested in the way that his early uh, cultural and political patrimony was tied up with imperial and, and imperial experience, and what you find in all is a constant. I, th- I think very interesting, and very moving dialogue with himself, a kind of struggle with himself over that imperial patrimony, in a sense. Orwell was the kind of per- he was the kind of person that he didn't want to be. So he's throughout his career trying to shed the not just the opinions, but maybe the assumptions, the habits, habits of thought and behaviour, ways of approaching people, which he had inherited with that imperial history. And I think that's to to generalize well grossly. That's interesting for me today because when I look around this country, the United Kingdom today, that is what we're still doing, in a sense. If you walk streets of this country, you won't find anyone, I think, who really wants to go back to um, having a British Empire, if that were possible. But in many ways, in the culture, it still lingers there. Um, And we've had, uh, particularly in recent years, a lot of debate and discussion, a lot of people getting very angry about the continuation of imperial thinking, perhaps even at at an unconscious level um, in people and institutions in this country. It's not something that you can unlearn just by snuffing your fingers. And even quite late in Orwell's career, you find him catching himself out um, in attitudes which he tried very hard to unlearn and to abandon and to get beyond. So yes, if you, it's not entirely clear when it happened, but by the time he left Burma, some would say, or a couple of years after he left Burma, he was a committed anti-imperialist and remained so for the rest of his life. That, in a sense, was, was the easy part, the political decision. But how you get rid of um, the empire from your mind, how you as people sometimes say, in a decolonized mind. That was difficult for him, as it's sometimes as it sometimes it's both the inheritance of colonialism and of the decolonized world.
0: So you would not necessarily agree with people, historians like Niall Ferguson or Jeremy Black, who argue that overall the British Empire was, for lack of a better expression, a good thing, quote-unquote.
2: No i wouldn't if if we're going to put it in as bold terms as that i I would not um <clears throat> Orwell's position was that it's simply unjust, and he said if you actually get somebody down and ask them, do you really believe that it's okay for one people to hold down another people by force and um assume their government um <clears throat> and control of their lives? Nobody really believes in it, in that. That's not to say that the empire didn't produce, um, didn't do some good things. Obviously, it did. Obviously, it did um, in terms of law and order, in terms of modernization, technology, many of the institutions, um, and so on. But even if everything that it did produce was wonderful, all well thought, even then, it wasn't really a justifiable phenomenon. It wasn't because it was unfair. It's basically unjust, and that's the position that he fixed it. So I think he would—that's what he would say to to Niall Ferguson. He wouldn't disagree with the list of technological, cultural achievements and so on that the the empire had accomplished over the world. But he said radically, at bottom, it's not justifiable. It's not just.
0: Yeah, but uh, didn't Orwell his himself sort of change his position in the essay which you make reference to in the book, um, which came out in the summer of 1939, which has a title which I I cannot repeat. Uh, it's a review of the um, Union with Britain now book by the American writer Clarence Struth. He makes the Orwell makes the point that. Um, uh, It's just mere propaganda to argue that the allies, the British and the French, were morally superior to the Germans, uh, or for that matter, the Japanese or the Italians, when it comes to it, uh, because of the fact of the British Empire holding down hundreds of millions, and the French Empire, for that matter, holding down hundreds of millions of people. But yet, when war came, he did a somersault and became a defender of the empire, at least de facto.
2: I think, for all of this, is a matter of political priorities. He believed that the worst thing that could happen to the world would be the triumph of Hitler and his Japanese allies. That everyone would suffer from that. So, if you look at his the broadcast that he made on the BBC to Indian listeners during the war, he's trying to make what for him must have been a quite uncomfortable argument since he was indeed in favor of the of the end of the empire in, in India. What he's saying to his Indian listeners is, look, first of all, the war has to be won, the war against Hitler and Japan. Um, you might remember that Gandhi, for example, was saying that if the Japanese invaded India, which they came very close to doing, um, that they should not be resisted. And they all thought this was wrong, that the Japanese need, needed Ilya needed to turn back Japanese to defeat the, I, uh, I said before, there's a kind of internal struggle going on in oil, and that was one of the um, instances of it. So it's not entirely a flip-flop. It's not entirely a sort of 180-degree um, turn. Um, it's a question of priority. He was an anti-fascist anti-imperialist. He felt that you had to deal with the fascism first, and then you could deal with the imperialism.
0: What do you mean when you say on page 56 that it's best to historicize Orwell?
2: Well, I think it's best to historicize everyone. Um, In Orwell's case, quite a lot of the way that Orwell's name is invoked um, in contemporary debates, it's often... Or is a kind of like a chess piece which has moved around, would he have approved of this, would he have disapproved of something else? Um, it's just a matter of remembering, I think. You know, Orwell was born in 1903. But, so he's not really our contemporary. And he lived in a world which is not the same as our world, and responded to issues and challenges which are not identical to ours. One way in which I try to historicize Orwell in, in this book, is to place him in the class of the Anglo-Indians. I have quite a lot to say about this in the book. Um, the Anglo-Indians were a or sect of the English middle class, um, quite prominent and numerous in Orwell's time, but they have now almost utterly disappeared from British national life. Because they were the officer class of the empire in the East, um, the British often used spoke of the East and India as if they were the synonyms. Uh, or, well, often when he's talking about Burma, describes it as in India. So the Anglo-Indians were those, uh, the officer class of those people who had worked in British Asia, in Southeast Asia, uh, in India, Ceylon, and so on. Um, both the military officer class, the administrative officer class, um, and the commercial officer class, if you, think, if you can speak of such today These people um, went out, had their careers in India where they lived um, pretty privileged lives for the most part, working hard perhaps, often in difficult circumstances. Um, but they were definitely a ruling class in India. Then when their career came to an end and they retired, certain stayed there, but most of them came back to the home country um, and retired there. And were very, they were very recognizable as a, a rather clannish, rather reactionary uh, so tribe of the English middle class. These are the people to whom Rudyard Kipling appealed in his writing, and whom he often writes about with great respect. Uh, Or, as I I said a bit earlier on, came from a a family that had worked in the empire, both commercially and uh, administratively, for generations. He belonged to the Anglo-Indian class or tribe, and he inherited from his family many attitudes, Fairly reactionary attitudes, I suppose we call them nowadays, um, which belong to that class. Now, you have to explain this to people in this country today because they have no idea who the Anglo Indians are. They're gone, they're off the map. Um, But they were important in their time. Um, So that's Orwell's starting place, if you like. And much of his career is a kind of a sort of purging of many of the Anglo-Indian attitudes that he had simply inherited perhaps so without thinking of them very much. He's not completely against that class, actually. He finds quite a lot to admire in it, just as there were things about the empire which were worth preserving, which they good achievement. Um, he thought that the Anglo-Indians were practical people, that they were problem-solving people, that they were not afraid of things, that they got on with stuff. They were hardworking. All of these qualities he admired and, and tried to share. Um, but it means that his cultural inheritance is something that we need to we have to reestablish. It's not because this, not the same as saying, oh, such and such a person came from the urban proletariat. He kind of understand what that is and, and still is. Um, the Anglo Indians have gone, so we need to bring them back into history to help us understand where you're coming from. You, you... So that's
1: just... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. <coughs> Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: What did Orwell mean by race? Okay, this is another difficult question. Um, We
2: could broaden it out and say, what did people mean when they used the word race in Orwell's time? And the answer is it was almost anything. Um, Race could be a word for colour, like black. It could be a word for nationality. It might be a word for different ethnic groups. Um, Orwell's view about the the British overseas is that they divided the world racially. They talk in in racial terms. Um, There was a difference between uh, Indians and and Brahmers and yet there are some British. People that just think of those those as, as Orientals. as different from us. There was, you know, in the 19th century, a scientific theory of race. If it was considered scientific at the time, we wouldn't consider it so now. But it seemed to many people that science had shown that human beings were divided into different races. That some races were more advanced than others and that therefore the more advanced races had a duty or an obligation to look after and to control the less advanced races because the kind of, you know, sort of there's a Darwinianism, the social Darwinianism behind it um, it was widely believed that r- the races were naturally anatomically different or was Very funny, Um, you know what I mean by the pith helmet. Um, If you see pictures of some Europeans in the East, and particularly, actually there's a famous picture of Orwell himself as a young man at the police training college in Mandalay where he spent his first year in Burma. All of the white, actually not only the white, all of the trainee officers in that picture Is carrying a pith helmet or topi, which was a a rather grand and large uh, piece of headwear, which all the British in the East wore, and they wore it because they had been told that there was an anatomical difference between Europeans and Orientals, that Orientals had a thicker skull, and that therefore it was okay for them to go out in the midday sun to no part of it, whereas the British, who had a thinner skull, had to wear a solar topi, otherwise, they would be subject to sunstroke. This is, as a matter of fact, absolute nonsense. But Orwell thought it was a telling detail because it showed that the white people in Burma were encouraged to think of themselves as having a natural difference from other races. Nowadays, we would find that you would find that an absurd um, <clears throat> proposition, I think of the idea of race doesn't really stand up because it's a bit like lecture. You can't get hold of it, but we slipping away. Um, so he, he thought that ideas of race stood behind the way the British thought about the world and about their empire. That races were naturally different, just as different breeds as animals, you know. Race, races were naturally different, uh, some races were more evolved, even to where the dominance had come. Some races were more evolved than others. And this explained why those races, and he's thinking of it, I think he obviously did the, the white races, the, the Europeans, um, because of these racial advantages, they had been successful in the world, spread all over the place, um, become richer, more scientific, more advanced, more powerful, um, and uh, more imperial saying that there was a kind of natural justification to the invasion and control of some people in some races by other races. So he wants to remove that. His point is, in fact, there's no such scientific thing as different races. And he applies this not only to the question of Burmese and Indians and Europeans and so on, but also in Europe, for example, to the question of the Jews. Um, There are are cultural groups which are Jewish, but they're not uh, in nature any different from anybody else. Um, And yet prejudice builds up against what is perceived to be an alien race, with all the catastrophic tragic consequences that we know about.
0: What was Orwell's relation to literary high modernism of Eliot, Joyce, and Pound? He,
2: uh, as a young writer, when he came back, you know, he was for five years with the Imperial Police in Burma. When he, when he came back to England, he decided he wanted to be a writer. One of the first things he did was to go and live in Paris. <laughs> that is immediately an indication of, of his allegiance to or aspiration to modernism because Perth was the capital city of modernism, it's where Joyce was and anyway and, and Gertrude Stein Picasso and all the artists. So as a young man of that generation, he was an enormous admirer of T. S. Eliot, of particularly of James Joyce, because Orwell saw that his own gift didn't really run towards poetry but towards narrative fiction. Um, and in some of his early writing, you see him uh, experimenting with what a clearly uh, modernist trope, which he felt from uh, um, Joyce and the rest. There was another aspect of him, of, an abiding aspect of, of his work, which admired writers who we wouldn't, who were contemporaries, but we wouldn't consider really to be modernist people like. Um, Somerset Maugham, for example, um, Orwell or admired for qualities which were, in a sense, the opposite of modernist qualities um, such as simplicity, directness, lack of adornment, <clears throat> narrative grasp, and so on. As he grows, as he develops, he he develops misgivings about the writers of the modernist generation. Once the thirties have got into full flow, where the political situation has very greatly darkened, Orwell was afraid that the modernist writers whom he admired so much had not set a very good political example. Not necessarily that, that they were extremely right wing, of course some of them were, but that they didn't they weren't responsible enough towards history. I think that's how he meant to put it. They didn't take enough act his interest in the political predicament of the 1930s. Whereas the people of his young generation, thinking about, you know, W.H. Jordan, Stephen Spender, Louis Ladies, that lot, where all, all of them wore their politics on their... and, and was against the high modernists um, on the grounds of what he, what he calls the lack of responsibility that they weren't um, politically committed enough. Um, as he gets, as he goes on through the 1930s into the war, I think he somewhat revised his opinion again. But these people, he's responding to them, of course, as his contemporaries. Um, and he maintained his early admiration for T. S. Yes, Eliot, for example, he worked quite closely with. When Orwell was at the BBC, he frequently invited Eliot to come and make programs with him to be interviewed, to talk about poetry, and so on. So they're on the scene for him. I don't think nowadays, in the long view, we would consider Orwell himself to be a modernist, Um, and that's partly because his own literary ambitions were, as he said, just because of the circumstances, were more political. But these are the great writers that he started out with. So he would change his respect for them, I think. It's the same with others of his generation. Auden, for example, it's very much the same.
0: What was Orwell's opinion of uh, what he termed the good-bad poet Kipling?
2: There's the famous uh, obituary essay on Kipling, written in 1936 when Kipling died, where Orwell describes his own vacillation about Kipling He says something like, "And I'm going to get these figures wrong. I loved Kipling when I was 16. I despised him when I was 19. I admired him again when I was 22. Then I hated him. Now I rather admire him. So talk about flip-flops. That's where he flip-flopped. He thought that Kipling is the great. He's the great imperial. I mean, great in every sense, actually. He's the great imperialist writer. Um, And for Orwell, as for many people of of his class, actually not only of his class, Kipping was a writer that he first met when he was a child. but Kipling's writing for children um, were often on the on the shelves of uh, of families at the time when Orwell was growing yeah. uh, The Jack stories, Plucky um, you know, uh, uh, those books, and and the, the Jungle Books, were have been sort of imbibed with mother's milk. So Kipling was was there for him all through his life. Um, he says in a later essay on Kipling, uh, "You you can't pretend that Kipling's views are anything other than disgraceful." So, Kipling espousal support for what the British were doing in India, was something that Orwell couldn't accept. On the other hand, Kipling is one of the great uh, chroniclers of the life of, of the Raj, of British India, not only of the white people in it, but also the Indians. And Hitler actually knew better than almost any other uh, Europeans in India, I would think. And he was, as all recognizes, a writer of very great natural gift um, in poetry and, and in narrative too. So there's another ambivalence for you. Here is the great Anglo-Indian bard whom, for whom Orwell, in some ways, has a great respect, but whom, on the other hand, he, he actually despises. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's part of the uh, the position in which he found himself was often an ambivalent one, just because of the circumstances and because of who he was. So Kipling is part of that, and he keeps returning to Kipling. It's something of an, an obsession. And I would say that Kipling and Orwell are, in a sense, two two sides of a British response to empire. And they have a lot in common, as well as being, in a sense, antagonists. I dash as Kipling had even heard of Orwell when he died in 1936. Um, But for Orwell, Kipling is, is a monumental figure on the landscape.
0: And what did Orwell think of uh, E.M. Foster's novel *Passage to India*?
2: Uh, he says that he thinks this is the, the best novel written about British India, and I think surely he's right, wouldn't you say? Um, <clears throat> I would, yes. In some way, yeah. In, in some ways, his own novel *Burmese Days*, which I admire very much, actually, I think it's a great novel. Um, it's often got, it's got Foster in his sights. Um, Orwell says somewhere, why is there so little good British writing about India? And he answers himself by saying, well, actually, most uh, English writers who were any really good couldn't bear to very long in British India because it was a horrible. Foster was a bit different. Foster had experience of being, living in India, but he didn't actually live under the British Raj. He lived in one of the nominally independent princely states. Um, so it's a slightly different idea that he's talking about. Um, but uh, Orwell was a was a great admirer of Foster, and not only for a Passage to India. Foster was a was a kind of he's a kind of icon for um young writers of, of Orwell's generation, W. H. Uh, Aldy too, WHO, who in some respects has very little in common with Foster, uh, looked to him as a kind of sort of Paternal literary figure, and very important.
0: Is it not a bit reductionist to attribute everything in Orwell's Five Years in the Orient, uh, in terms of his future as a writer? I'm thinking of, for example, the idea that, to some extent, the metaphor of um, employed in the Animal Farm could be attributed to Orwell's uh, experience as a police officer in Burma, when in fact, uh, I think the um, metaphor comes from Gissing's Guessing's novel, Demos. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, I don't think it's entirely fair to
2: to describe this as reductive. I'm not saying that uh, Animal Farm is simply about Burma, not a bit of it. But what I'm saying is that all those later work, after he'd left the East, Behind him, is still propelled, is still informed by that eastern experience. For example, in um, uh, the Road to Wigan Pier, remember that's the documentary book in which he goes to the relatively deprived north of England, and he talks about the lives of working people there. Um, he gives a bit of autobiography, and he says that when he came back from the east he looked on working people in England as a kind of analogy to the colonised peoples of the East. That's a very interesting, very problematic thing to say because in many respects, of course, they weren't an analogy. In many respects they were different, but he worked his way through that. Um, I would I would say actually that the one connection that we can make, which I think is very interesting, is the conception of uh, the of people as animals, okay animal farmers an allegory about a farmyard in which all the animals rebel unsuccessfully in the end um, against the farmer. Um, that analogy of people with animals is one that he had been making right back from the uh, from his his time in Burma, and I think that that helped to propel the imagination, which he then fills into this farmyard story which is about as almost all his fictions are it's about a failed revolution it's about a rebellion which can't succeed okay the allegory is quite specifically and very cleverly based on the history of the Russian revolution anyone can see that Um, but the idea of the, the sort of the hopeless rebel the failed rebel is one which is comes up in, in all his fictions, going all the way back to not just Burmese days, at clergyman's daughter, keep the Asperist for flying, and so on. And I think that that sense of the downtrodden who are hopeless, who have, who have no hope of a successful, lasting revolution, I think that's something which probably begins in Burma. Because when all was in Burma, there were there was quite a lot of some anti-colonial uh, feeling and indeed action, uh, but it never came to anything. If you look at the riots against the British and Burmese days, they're actually quite easily put down, and it reverts to um, the status quo ante. So that pattern of rebellion and its failure is one that goes reaches way back. To his early life, I think. But look, I'm not saying that. Um, yes, go on. No, I'm, I'm. I don't. I don't want to give the impression that I'm beating the drum for a single interpretation of of uh, Orwell's work. But uh, overall, all the others. Of course, I'm not doing that. I mean, nobody in their right mind would do that. What I'm trying to do, as I uh, try to explain at the beginning, is to offer a kind of mild corrective um, to the way in which. Orwell's work has hitherto, to a large extent, not entirely, to a large extent, um, understandings of Orwell's work have not paid enough attention to this aspect of his his work. Okay. Now, he was very much involved in, God knows, in European politics in the 1930s and 1940s. He fought in Spain and all the rest of it. Um, So these things are very much at the forefront. But I think even when he was in Spain, uh, his earlier experience, because we don't forget our earlier experience, do we? It doesn't just get locked up in a box somewhere. It lives with us. Um, so
0: that his experience in Spain is also informed by his early experience in, in the East. So you wanted to offer an alternative to the exclusive view of Orwell as a uh, writer of the of the Cold War or the pre Cold War. Uh, what I'm Hope I'm offering is
2: in a modest way an enrichment of that reading through taking account of this imperial theme. That's what I'm doing. Um, so, 1984 and Animal Farm are clearly overwhelmed by the notion of Stalin, um, <clears throat> but all of the understanding of the misuse of political authority of violence and so on goes back to the time when he himself was the one who wielded the baton, you know. He was he was a policeman whose job had been to put down riots and to uh, police dissidents and so on. So I think that part of his life should not be forgotten. And you can find, if you go looking for it, I think you find it all the way through all. And I'm not thinking only of the,
0: of the fiction, there it is there in the fiction. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Kerr, for being so kind as to speak with us today. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Kerr, very much.